Howdy, friends. You're listening to teaching from our college ministry here at FBC Bryan. We hope you enjoy this message from our college pastor, John Davison, as we journey through the book of 2 Timothy. If you have any questions, please reach out through social media, or you can visit our website at fbcbryan.org slash college. We hope you enjoy. Amen. Thanks, guys. Hey, grab your Bible. We are uh, continuing through 2 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 4. Let me set us up a little bit about kind of where we've been um, and then try to get through this uh, as quick as we can. So um, Paul encouraging Timothy, if you haven't been with us, Paul is, uh, has been sentenced to death. We know that he's dying soon, and this really is kind of his last words to Timothy, who he trusts as a brother to continue the ministry um, to not only Timothy's church in Ephesus, which is a train wreck of a city, um, that is going after the church, that he just has a difficult journey uh, in front of him to continue the work there, to continue the work to, uh, to the Gentiles who Paul has called to be a minister to uh, first also. And so this is, this is kind of his last hurrah, his last words to him, um, to Timothy. And there's a lot that's just like, hey, I, you need to be faithful and remain like, connected to God's word. And, and there's a comparison between like, here's what the world's doing, and this is what you need to be doing. Here's what the evil are doing. This is what you need to be doing. Here's what the false teachers are doing. And this is the direction that you need to be going. And this is where we get, um, we got through the first four verses of, of chapter four, the last couple of verses of, of chapter three uh, last time, and we just keep going. And so this is what this is going to look like. Uh, verse five, he does this, another transition. But as for you, this is what they were doing, but as for you. And then he gives his little uh, Paul's kind of example to Timothy, starting in verse 6, that's 6, 7, and 8. And then he gives like a, an example of others and some final instructions from 9 to the end, verse 22. Today we're going to cover one verse, just verse 5, his, his directive towards Timothy. And then in Bible study this week, if you're not in a Bible study and you want to know more about this, then you better go join a Bible study this week. I don't care which one. Uh, they're all great. They're going to cover 6, 7, and 8. And then we'll come back next week and kind of put a bow on 2 Timothy, which sounds weird to do. Uh, but we're just going to wrap this thing up uh, and send it out as like, here's the, the example to others. And, and I, I wish I would have been thinking about this uh, even because... Uh, one of our leaders asked me this question just, just about leadership as a whole. And, and here, here's the thing. We just, we just came off of a leader treat where we took our college leaders in, to prepare for next year. Um, and some of you are like, how come I wasn't invited to that leader retreat? Um, because we didn't ask you to be a leader next year. And that's not, a, that's not like an offense to you, okay? That's not like we think that these people are better leaders than you are. Um, these are people that are known, that are committed to the ministry that we've seen, that we have relationship with, um, that we believe are gifted and called to be in that space after like prayerfully considering and then being recommended. That doesn't make you less of a leader if you don't have a title, Okay, I just want to say that. You are all called to be leaders. You're all called to, to be an example. This book is for you, and so you have your space. You have a space that I don't have. You have a space that others that are in leadership may not have. You have this department that you're with, and this dorm that you're in, and this group of friends that you have been called to. And so we're all called to be leaders. The, the crazy part about this is that Paul, for three verses, like puts himself on display. And, and we're going we're gonna to read this. Starting in verse 5, we're going to see, he's like, hey, here's my leadership ability that you should follow. Leaders are called to set an example. They are called to be known, that, to be known that they're a leader, and to lead. And so you all have this. This is my charge to all of you in this space. Okay, so starting in verse 5. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And then to Paul. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He's like, I'm on my way out. 
And the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only me, but all those who have loved his appearing. Verse 9, we'll, we'll, we're going to read this, but I want to go through it. Make, we're going to cover it next week, but I want to go through it. Make every effort to come to me soon, because Demas has deserted me. Since he loved this present world, he has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. I have sent Titus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left in Traus with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith with great harm, uh, did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Imagine that being in Scripture for the rest of your life, by the way. <laughs> He's called you out. Watch out for him yourself because he's strongly opposed to our words. At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And he goes to his benediction. And, and like, I love this. The Lord will rescue me, but his rescue is heaven. His rescue is not on this earth. It's not comfort. It is heaven. And so Paul has this, this, this idea of what is to come. And I was beginning to think about this and I was reminded of this article that, that I ran across. And I also put a picture of the, it's a, a website article. New Zealanders are crazy first. I'm going to put that out there. The New Zealanders, they started this thing called the Coffin Club. And basically, they gather together, and there's a bunch of these groups that have sprung up all over the country, and it's, it's the elderly, it's the older people who get together, and instead of quilting and lawn bowling and playing bridge, they started building their own coffins. Building their own coffins. Not coffins for other people. They're like, this is my box right here. This is the one that I'm going into. Just like pass the time. I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and build my coffin. And you see the last line of there, because of my work and my age, I had become a perpetual mourner, which means like, I know that I am going to die. And, and this is the woman who started it. Here's the next one. Now, like, I love this picture. That's, that's Katie. She's the founder of the Kiwi Coffin Club. Just posing with her coffin. That's a nice one. I mean, that is in her house, like in the living room. That's where I'm going to be. Um, it's unbelievable. Side note, old people are crazy. This next one proves it. Check this out. That's Colin. He's a member of the club. He's planking on his wallpaper, newspaper coffin. He's going out with like, he, he like paper mached his coffin. <laughs> He would, he would probably be like the coolest guy in the room. So I know, um, that's Colin just planking his cup. I, I have a shop behind my house. I make things out of wood. I don't think I could do this. I don't think that like one day Alyssa's like, hey, what's that wood for? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and build my coffin. <laughs> Why? It's going to save us some money. I, I guarantee I could build it for a hundred bucks. And then you could just put me in it when, when we're done. It would be a constant reminder of my death. That, that's what that would be. The, that article goes on to say um, a couple things. I've seen lots of people dying, and their funerals were nothing to do with the vibrancy and life of those people. 
You would not know well what they were really like. They had all lived and they had laughed and they had loved. They had deep-seated feelings that people's journeys deserved more than just a, a farewell, but they needed a personal farewell. And Katie, that woman that was posing with her coffin, she said, our motto is, it's a box until there's someone in it. But, but while it's just a box, golly. And while it's just a box, it brings us together. That's crazy. But, but this is, hear me, like I think this is Paul. Like if, if Paul, Paul probably built his own coffin and just carried it around. He's like, I'm just ready to get in that. When I'm done, put me in that. This is the end. This is what I, it's kind of what I long for. I want to be released from this thing, and I want to go to heaven. We know that. When we, when we, like Philippians 1, we know his heart behind that. But in all of this, the reason that he's writing this, the reason that he encourages us in the gospel in all of his letters and, and his, his directives towards Timothy is this, you have to finish well. And, and his constant reminder of what was next, like basically having a coffin in the room that was just like, I'm going to die. There is, I don't think there's any greater way to finish well than building your own coffin. Like, how incredible is that? I'm going to go all the way until I'm old, and then I'm going to build, build the thing that I'm going to spend like the rest of my earthly gross days in. I'm going to finish that well. That's unbelievable. This is the mindset that he has, he's thinking about. And, and the opening words to Timothy, just the one verse that we're going to look at. But as for you, he's going, hey, I'm, I'm done. I need you to fulfill your ministry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be poured out. But as for you, this is what I need you to do. As in all of the previous passages that he's directing towards Timothy, he once again contrasts just the, how crazy the, the, the Ephesus, the, the Ephesians were um, to Timothy's call to be different. And, and many of them have been led into deception. We read that in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. Timothy is called to be something else. He's called to do something else. We've got to keep a clear head in everything. Because some people don't want to hear the word of truth. But Timothy must be prepared to endure this hardship that is to come. One, when people have pushed against his teaching, when they're opposed to him and the way that he's living. And, and since people are ignorant of the gospel, Timothy has to, be, to continue to do the work of an evangelist. Even though some people are going to abandon him to follow the false teachers, Paul says that you have to fulfill your ministry. Timothy was in, we've said it, he's just in an unbelievably challenging setting to do ministry in, but it's not much different really than our day and kind of what ministry looks like for all of us, what ministry is going to look like for you um, in college, what ministry is going to look like for you maybe when you go back home to uh, maybe a household that doesn't know Jesus, maybe a community that that really needs some sort of revival and you get to be a catalyst for that. Maybe a future job that you're into and you go into this, this space that you think that you were called by God to and it's just really dark when you go in there and it's, there's a lostness and a heaviness and God put within you a desire to be an engineer and it pushed you into this space and you ended up in this office and, and there's just a lostness that your engineer became like your mission field. And, and he's, he's calling us to, to do, to fulfill our ministry. He, he understands that his job is unbelievably difficult and the same thing is true for us like we face these challenges every day and so the the directives that he gives him are for us and the first one that he says right off the bat but as for you exercise self-control in everything 
Exercise self-control in everything. This command, you, some of you have different versions of this. It may say like be serious or be sober-minded um, in your approach to this. Mine says exercise self-control. Really what he's doing there, the, the word really means that you should have a high moral alertness. You should have a high moral alertness, which it basically means that you should be cool um, in all situations and you should be present with your mind. Paul uses this word earlier um, in 1 Timothy when he's giving the qualifications for the list of elders. He says, as an overseer, therefore you must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That self-controlled and sensible is really kind of the word that he's using here. Same verb is used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. That's, that's what we're called to as Christians. Two verses later in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. And in our self-control, he goes on to say, and put on the armor of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. He brings that, that, that armor of God into our self-controlled nature. Part of us having that sober mind or that moral alertness is that we would constantly be putting on the armor of God as a protector. This is where he's, he's pushing us to, to think about. Like, like in our modern terms, he's basically going, hey bro, don't freak out. What you're called to do as a Christian, what you're called to do in your current culture, which is very applicable to us, is just to live in a way that th you know that things are gonna happen and when they happen to you, don't freak out. Like, like you're, you're good. You can't lose your minds when you face opposition. You can't lose your minds when, when you are discouraged. You gotta remain calm and sane. Like the, the best example of this I have, I think it was the second flight that I ever took. I was trying to think through this. We took a, a group of kids um, to Arad, Romania, which means you have to fly over the Atlantic Ocean. And there's a bunch of kids who had never been on a plane before. We were East Texas. They had never even seen an airport before. And so it was just like one of those things. We took them to the airport, we put them on a plane, and we flew over the ocean. And on there was the worst turbulence that I've ever felt in my life. And it was one of those moments where everybody's asleep, and then like the seatbelt sign, ding, comes back on. And I don't sleep very well on the plane, and so I'm kind of looking around. it. And it was cool because our group wasn't sitting together, like all right beside each other. I could see one kid, his name was Travis. Um, he was a couple aisles, he was an aisle, then some seats in the aisle, and I could see him over there. And in between us, I clearly remember this, there was an older guy and there was a Muslim woman that was in the middle. And when the, when the, the seatbelt sign came on, and then one of the uh, flight attendants made an announcement that said, if you're in the restroom or if you're standing up, please take a seat now. And so they knew that something was about to happen. And in about 30 seconds, the plane felt like it just fell out of the sky. It was one of those moments where we, we talked to him afterwards, we dropped about a thousand feet instantly. And so you're just like this and all of a sudden, and like in your mind you go, I'm dead. Like I'm dying right now. Plane came apart, we're dead. I know I'm over the ocean. I can see the little map up there. And, and Travis, Travis looked at me initially because drinks went flying off of tables and things were happening. Like it was just a wild moment. And he looked at me and our eyes were all kind of big, like this is radical. That Muslim woman flipped her little tray table thing and just like started praying, like frantically praying. And I'm like, that, that's actually the proper response. I, on the other hand, was just like watching what was happening and, and watching just the turmoil of the plane. Because in my mind, like this is what, I, if we crash, there is zero I can do about it. 
Like maybe the pilot is skilled and we land in the ocean and then we go into rescue mission and I'm gonna be on the news. But, <laughs> but otherwise it was just like, what am I gonna do? And this lasted for about an hour as we flew through this Atlantic storm. And the people whose drinks didn't go flying to the ceiling, the flight attendants would not get up. That's how crazy it was. The people whose drinks didn't go flying, who were like awake and aware at that point, being Travis over on the other side, he had, he had a cherry Coke <laughs> sitting on front, I remember this. And he would, he would play this game where he would let go of it and see if he could like, catch it. He was like, mm. <laughs> this, this is what we should be doing right here. This is that mindset. Everyone in the back of the plane losing their mind because they're not in control. The pilot, it's probably nothing new to him. He knew, like, I'm going into this storm. It's, I'm going to flip the switch. Boom, y'all probably shouldn't get up. I'm not really scared about crashing. I've been trained for this. I've gone through these exercises. I've been in the simulator. I've crashed multiple times in the simulator, not for real. <laughs> like, like he, he understands all of those things. He understands the dynamic of the plane, that it can, it can withstand all of this. I know for all of us, they're looking. The tin can in the air blows our mind. But to him, not a big deal. He got through it, and he gets on the radio. It's like, hey, I know that was a little bit bumpy. Thank you for your patience. My co-pilot slept through it. Um, that's how they were. This is what he's calling us to, to have that same kind of level head, like a pilot flying through a storm. Like, we, we have to be reminded of this. And how can we have this clear head? How can we deal with the pressures and the problems of this modern world and just kind of keep a clear head? I think this is a challenge for us every day. And you might wake up and go, how, how do I approach today? This day in my mind could go really smooth or it could not go smooth. I, I may face some challenges. I want to live out my faith in front of people. What do I do? Here's a good prayer. Go, God, would you give me a clear head? Would, would you give me a clear head about everything? And that is found in just the simple reminders of your grace. That, that in all of this, you are in control. In everything, you have it. And, and for Paul, like this is an urgent thing, but as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Basically, he's going, this is absolutely essential for you to be faithful. Your self-control is essential for your faithfulness. Most of your sin issues are because you do not have self-control in that area. And a lot of times you're like, well, how do I handle this? And often we're going to go, God's going to have to be able to, is going to be the one to rescue you from that. Don't rely on yourself. You need God's grace and the reminder of that so that you can function in this. Alistair Begg wrote this book that's called um, Steady As You Go. And in it, he was talking about this kind of section. And, and he really highlights the fact that Timothy teaches from the negative, or sorry, Paul teaches from the negative a lot. And then he gets to this commandment to Timothy and he flips it back to the positive. And so Alistair says, like, we should remain level-headed, which is what exercising self-control is. But Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, that you should also avoid being fat-headed. 1 Timothy 3, 6, that's puffed up with pride. You have a fat head. You should avoid being bobble-headed, which means that you bounce around to every, like, doctrinal fad. Just be like, I like this. I like this. He said, avoid that. That's 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, 3 and 4. He says that you should avoid being empty-headed, getting involved in, like, empty controversies, empty arguments. That's 2 Timothy 2, 23. Avoid being empty-headed. He says, avoid being sick-headed, having a mind that's filled with immorality. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Or being hot-headed. That's responding to critics in a sinful, like, angry manner instead of with gentleness, with self-control. That's 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. He's going, with the power of the Holy Spirit, you remain level-headed 
Self-control, stability, and steadiness are the marks of a faithful Christ follower. Just be self-controlled. Paul himself exemplified this spirit um, later on even in this chapter when he was like, hey, everybody has deserted me. And in verse 16, everyone has deserted me. At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. That's such a self-controlled response. Everybody's gone. And a lot of us, if that happened, I'm in prison. I'm about to die. And all these guys have left me. My prayer is like, hey, God, smite them. Let them, let them have, a, have a donkey crash and no longer be able to walk. Like, this is kind of how we think. Like, Lord, would you just destroy them? Would, would they burn? Like, we just get violent sometimes when we're left like that. And Paul has this like level-headed kind of mindset that's self-controlled where he goes, I recognize that they all left me. May it not be counted against them. That's such a sweet response. He's self-controlled. He's, so, he's sober. He's mindful of other people. And that is something that the Lord did in him. You understand where he came from, a guy who, who pursued Christians in order to kill them, and the switch is flipped, and he does this. When, when people abandon him, he's going, ah, maybe it may, may not be counted against them. Such a sweet response. First, self-control. Second, endure hardship. This subject of endurance comes up over and over and over again. The example's in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, 2 verse 3. 2 verse 9, 2 verse 10, 3 verse 10, 3 verse 12. He just continues to talk about this endurance. Timothy is called to continue through all of the conflict that he's going to face in Ephesus. He's to avoid being bitter in hardship, quitting because of hardship, responding to violence because of, of hardship. He's just saying, hey, you endure hardship. We share in the suffering of Christ Jesus as a good soldier, chapter 2 verse 3. This is what we're called to. No one is going to be able to say, like Paul, I have fought the good fight, which you'll study in Bible study this week. No one is going to be able to say that I have fought the good fight unless you learn to endure hardship. It's just true. In, in my short time, which has now gone pretty long, some of you are like old, um, in my short time of being a pastor, I'm going to continue to say that, which has now been a full-time job of mine for 22 years. I have encountered physical suffering, which a lot of you are amused by. Um, scooter gang, all right. Relational abandonment, demonic warfare, the burden of preaching, <laughs> financial instability at times, the loss of two babies, discouraged, doubt, an adoption that they said would take three long years that's now taken nine the loss of other loved ones that you guys have walked beside us in, parental challenges with those two knuckleheads running around, criticism from people, false accusations from people, and other things. Now, what I get to do is the greatest joy of my life, and at times so much fun, but also hard, like just difficult. But I also know this, that it doesn't, it, it doesn't require you being a pastor to endure hardship. Because this story that I voice out loud because I have a microphone, all of you can echo parts of it. Like your life's just difficult. And hear me, you're in the easy part of it. You just are. Many of you 
bless the Lord for this, like come from great families and, and have like really stable environments that you're in. And you're going to walk through things that that part of your life gets flipped upside down and it's just going to be difficult. And if you don't learn to endure hardships, then you won't be able to fight the good fight. Just know that it's coming. He, he speaks that out to Timothy going, you, you need to understand this. And so Christians who desire to obey Christ are going to face hardship. It's promised to you. Chapter 3, verse 12, like it's, it's just promised that you're going to struggle, you're going to face hardships, but we have to let hardships that happen in our lives be the result of us following Jesus. And in those hardships, they push, they push us to prayer, not to despair. When you, when you face hardships, a lot of times we just want to be like, why God? And you just like scream. And, and in those moments, I've flipped my language by going, what, God? Not why is this happening to me, because I'm a wretched sinner, and I deserve death and hell in that order. But God has redeemed me, and so when I'm walking through those things, I'm like, okay, God, what do you want? What, what do you want me to learn from this? What do you want me to, 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 to grow in? What do you want me to, to understand so that then I can better minister to other people? I just got to learn to endure hardships. And he calls him to do the work of an evangelist. Paul doesn't have the, the idea of the gift of evangelism or the office of evangelism that he talks about in Ephesians 4 to him here because Timothy is a pastor. All right, Timothy's first call is to, to rightly handle God's word so that he can encourage people, but he also has this. He's going, hey, your focus in the midst of handling God's word needs to be proclaiming the gospel. You need to proclaim the gospel to the believers in your church, and you need to proclaim the gospel to those outside of the church so that you can reach the unbelieving, unbelieving world with the good news of Christ. And in a broader sense, this verse basically says that all Christians are called to be evangelists. Not all Christians have the gift of evangelism. Uh, many of you in here will go, I hate that. It scares me. When I think about sharing the gospel with people, I break out into a cold sweat. But he, he, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is what the gospel says in us, which would be God's word. It says that you are called to spread this gospel with people. And, and I love kind of the, looking at the early church with this. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God boldly. That, that's what happened to them. They just began to speak God's word boldly. And, and basically, when you speak God's word boldly, you are an evangelist. You are sharing the gospel with people. Acts 8, 4, a couple chapters later. So those who were scattered from that event, who were scattered around the world, they went on their way preaching the word. They were being the role or doing the work of the evangelist. And so whether it's one-on-one -on -one personal evangelism, which we want to challenge you with, or the, pub the public proclamation of, of like, hey, this is Christ and him crucified, evangelism is work. Do the work of an evangelist. Spreading the gospel is not always easy. It takes hard work and commitment to see people come to know Christ. It takes a lot of engagement with people. Those of you who go to us with New York, uh, with us to New York are going to hear this. They say that it takes, on average, 10 interactions with somebody sharing the gospel with somebody in order for them to make a decision to follow Christ. 10. What if you're number one and you share the gospel with somebody and they walk away angry with you? Is your role any less important than number 10? It is not. In fact, it's foundational and it's needed. Number 10 may get the joy of being like, hey, have you heard the gospel? Yeah, I've heard it, but let me explain it to you one more time. I'm ready to respond to that. And they get to celebrate that but hear me, you get to celebrate that in heaven. 
because I believe that God in his faithfulness, as you are faithful to share Christ with people, and even in their rejection, and you wear that, you're going to walk into heaven and be like, how did you get here? You rejected that. No, I didn't, I didn't reject it. You were just a part of me understanding it. And that's sweet for us. Doing the work of an evangelist is difficult. And this is why Jesus, he says, hey, hey, disciples, pray for workers to enter the harvest field because there are so few of them in Matthew chapter 9. Pray for workers. He didn't, he didn't tell them to pray for like half-hearted slackers. Pray for workers. Evangelism is labor. That's why it's compared to a hardworking farmer. And any of you that come from farmers' families or look at them, they outwork everybody. And a lot of times their work is what? Kind of fruitless for a long time. And then all of a sudden, boom, the harvest. And they cut it all down and they start over. That's, and it's unbelievable hard work. They get up early. They work long hours. They come home tired. And this is why evangelism is labor for us. You got to sow and plow every day if you want to see fruit in people's lives. Keep planting seeds and pray that God would grow them. Acts chapter 17 shows us this really, really cool picture of the work of an evangelist. Paul is waiting on his friends um, in Athens when he's provoked by the idolatry of the city. And because he longed for the people in that city to worship God, he engages with them in the gospel, and, and he interacts at that point with three groups of people. Starting in verse 17 of Acts 17, he says this, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day, and those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So he, he reasons with religious people in the synagogue, pointing them to the Messiah. He dialogues with those who were passing in the marketplace, and then he addresses the academics. He, he does the work of an evangelist, and we need laborers in all of those spaces. You might get to just interact with the religious in the synagogue. You might get to dialogue with those in the marketplace. You might be interacting with the, with the academic, which, hear me, is probably the most difficult. Like My job is often pretty easy because a lot of times just followers of Jesus show up in this place that I work, and I get to talk to them about it. Some of you are going to be in places where you have academic, unbelievably intellectual atheists who are going to come at you like so unbelievably challenging for you to even share your faith in that space. And he's saying, hey, you have to do the work. And if you, if you desire to improve in your evangelistic faithfulness, which I think all of us would be like, please, Lord, let that happen. Here's a, a few things that you need to be reminded of. One, you don't work alone. Even when you're alone, you don't work alone. The Holy Spirit is the best evangelist there's ever been. He opens the eyes of believers to see all throughout the book of Acts. He's promised that he's going to go before. The, the display of his magnificent ability in evangelism is, is the thing that brings people to Christ. You can read about that in Acts chapter 8. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. When the Holy Spirit shows up, people are just like, hey, we And it can be the dumbest sermon ever preached, and they show up. What happened in Jonah, I believe, is the Holy Spirit's fault when he's walking through the city and he was like, hey, your city's going to be destroyed in 40 days. That was the only thing he said to them, and the Holy Spirit showed up and everybody repented. Terrible message that led to an unbelievable response. You have a partner that goes with you in evangelism who's the best. First one. 
Second, you speak out of the overflow of your heart to people. And if, if you understand that, then your goal should be to fill your heart with the gospel daily. If you will pay attention to Jesus, then you will share Jesus with others. I know the things that you pay attention to because you talk about them. Sports, girls. That's kind of it. That's all I hear from you. Um, no. Food, relationships, school, those are the things that you pay attention to and you speak them out loud. And so if you want to do the work of the evangelist, then you need to send, this is a cool way to think about this, if you want to do the work of an evangelist, then you need to send little evangelists to your heart every day. You need your heart to be evangelized every day. You need to grow in your knowledge of the gospel every day. You need to understand who you are in Christ every day. And then you rise up in that and you just naturally speak about that to other people. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. Are you evangelizing to yourself first so that you can evangelize to others? But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the summary of Timothy's calling from Paul. Paul's going, hey, complete what God is calling you to. The same verb that he uses here to fulfill your ministry, he used when Paul and Barnabas had completed their work, uh, their relief efforts in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12. Luke writes in Acts chapter 12, after they had completed, which is the word fulfilled that we see here, after they completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who is called Mark. Timothy here is called to, to continue his work until it is completed. The, the work that Paul has in mind includes... Um, kind of in a, in a broad sense here, it includes everything that he had already told him to do in First and Second Timothy. He's like, hey, pay attention to all of this stuff. The, the fulfilling your ministry includes all of that. But in the immediate context of what's happening here, he's, he's basically going like, you need to preach, you need to teach, you need to encourage other people in God's word because it is, it is truth for a truthless world. You need to engage in God's word so that other people can understand it through you. You need to complete or fulfill your ministry. He wants Timothy to continue to, to keep teaching and sharing God's word to people, pointing them to Jesus and loving the church as he does so. And so to fulfill our ministry, you got to avoid foolish controversies and silly matters. The best way that I saw this, Nicholas Zinzendorf, uh, who was the ministry count of the 18th century, wrote this. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's the assignment. Complete your work, and then go home. Like, how good is that? Just complete your work, and then go home. Paul's going, keep a clear head. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And your ministry is this. Preach the gospel. Die and be forgotten. He's calling us to be faithful to the end. And there's no shortcuts to this. Like this is, this is work. He's calling us to this work. And so this is what I encourage you about is, as the band comes up and we're going to sing a little bit more and, and close. If we're going to preach the gospel and we need to hear that every day, I can't function under the assumption that everybody in here knows and understands the gospel and believes it with their whole heart. 
And this is why. This, this is scary for me. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives this sermon, and, and he's responding to people, hear me, he's responding to people who interacted with Jesus, who heard Jesus speak, who were involved in nailing him to a cross. And in Acts chapter, chapter 2, verse 22, he says this, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man arrested, or sorry, attested to you by God with miracles. He was attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. You are without excuse. You know that he did these things. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And this is my fear, that you know of this Jesus and you've heard of his miracles and his wonders and his signs, and with your life, you just nail him to a cross. You're not faithfully following him. You know of the gospel, but you don't know the gospel. And so in this space, like... As I daily preach the gospel to myself, I I don't want to, to miss the opportunity for you to hear it again. You are born blind and dead in your sin, and by God's grace, he allows you to exist on his creation underneath this hope that you would repent and run back to Jesus not know about Jesus, not know about God, not be born into a Christian family because for some reason the Lord in his mercy allowed you to live in Texas in the Bible Belt and so you hear about Jesus every day. He has given you the opportunity to live on this space under the hope that you will recognize his grace that was put on display through the cross and run to that. Because in your sin, you are dead and in your death, you cannot satisfy the wrath of God, which means that there had to be a perfect sacrifice paid for you, which is what Jesus did. And in his death, and in his burial, and in his resurrection, we see that the price that he paid satisfied God's wrath for you. And so now there is no condemnation for those that sit underneath that umbrella that is Christ's blood poured out for you on the cross. And this is how you know because some of you begin to question, like, well, I was born in Texas, and I've always been to church, and do I actually know the gospel? You will know because you will daily desire to know that more. You will daily desire to grow in that. You will daily desire to pursue that. And in the pursuit of that, you will, you will daily desire to drag other people with you. You will share it. You will live it out. You'll be burdened for the lost. That's the gospel. That is the good news. That you couldn't, Christ could. We've said it before. The gospel is just Christ in your place. And when that happens, you will desire to follow him all of your days. And so please don't be like the Israelites in Acts chapter 2 who knew this Jesus, who have seen his miracles put on display, who went to church services and got to hear about him being preached, and with their life nailed him to a cross we got to be on the other side of it. Walking in the confidence 
and in the joy and in the hope that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he is contending for you, that he is your great high priest, and he longs for the day that you get to come home and that you are completely glorified in his presence is what Paul is looking forward to. It's what he's going to talk about in the next couple of verses. Like he's waiting for this crown of righteousness, which is going to be rewarded to him on the day that he dies. And then that crown of righteousness is not because of his good works. That crown of righteousness is because of what Jesus did for him. And do you understand that? And if you don't understand that, don't leave this place without it. That's what I'm begging of you. So we're going to pray and we're going to worship. And if, and if you function in that space, we, we don't want to necessarily make this awkward for you, except for the fact that the Bible calls for you to say that to people. And so for the first time, if you're hearing the gospel and you're going, I've never really actually walked in that and I got to take care of that. That's the Holy Spirit stirring that in you to take this next step. Would you talk to one of our leaders? Back of the room, they're kind of scattered all over the place. You can find me and be like, hey, for the first time, I actually understand the gospel. Will you help me follow Jesus? We can do that while we sing and even afterwards. Let me pray for you. And then if the Lord's stirring that in you, move. Um, Otherwise, let's respond and worship. God, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for hardship. We thank you that, that you are calling believers in this room. You're calling believers in this room to, to make a difference for the gospel, to, to live for you in a way that reflects to others. But in that promise, like there's hardship, there's difficulty, there's challenge. There's also reward. And so in this space for, for believers, who have been faithfully following you, would you encourage them to continue that pursuit? And for those that haven't started a relationship with you yet, would you by your spirit stir within them a desire to know you and to follow you and for the first time to to take a step closer to you? They've been playing a game like the Israelites and, and kind of know the gospel but don't know the gospel. May you challenge them to walk in that tonight. God, thank you for what you're doing, for how you're stirring, for your spirit. I thank you for your word that it's powerful and effective. And we trust you to do what only you can in this space. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and worship.